be that old-fashioned gumption, homegrown honoriness and tenacity, so often seen as characteristics of Appalachian people, have sustained lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people born of this mountain soil? Appalachians have often shown themselves to be resourceful and determined, maintaining families and dignity with limited means. What happens when the spirit of the indomitable mountaineer lodges within a same-gender loving person? The mountain person is taught how to use the hillbilly stereotype for his own protection to confound, aggravate, harass Dr. Helen Lewis, Appalachian scholar. The strengths, resilience, and competencies of many gay youths are an untold story. Participants in an exploratory study credited parents and other significant adults with establishing the foundation for positive self-esteem and a sense of competency. Andrew Anderson, Doctor of Social Work. There have always been brave people in rural America who have fulfilled and honored their sexuality and, more to the point, their right to love who they want to love. There have always been those people everywhere, but I would like to think especially in Appalachia. With its tradition of dogged, stubborn, wonderfully, marvelously mule-headed people. <laughs> Fenton Johnson, Appalachian-born author. The Scots-Irish for certain fled from civilization. They had already had enough of it. The forces that drove them from Ireland to America and the odds they faced as pioneers in the South formed the temperament and the attitudes of a certain class of backwoods southerner for generations. To keep to themselves, they have gone almost off the edge of the earth. They and their parents had grown up in a place where law and order was something that worked against poor people. Shirley Abbott, Southern author. How do people utilize their early teachings by strong mountaineers? Following are edited direct <coughs> quotes from interviews with lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people, one of whom lives outside the Appalachian region. That's me. <laughs> this is an interweaving of testimonials that each person gave to me alone in the comfort of their own home. They've allowed me to share their words with you anonymously. My companions are actors speaking for people I've interviewed in West Virginia. Names of the characters are all changed. The actors' own names are Carolyn Rodas, Shelley Miller, Debbie Halverson, June Bauman, Nelson Smith, Ray Sibley, Mark Kohut, Susan Hall West, Stephanie Dorsey, Stosh Zilkowski, Brad Toole, and Jack Kendall. I'd like to thank these readers, as well as so many others who must go unnamed, for making this work possible. 
I'm interested in resiliency, the ability to stretch in many directions and yet to survive. There are many ways to be resilient. I just keep on keeping on and pushing on. <laughs> well, you seem to have a lot of stamina. Well, I've got to. A girl's got to do what a girl's got to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, John. I interviewed people from different areas of the Mountain State, different sized communities, different class backgrounds, and different races. Some people I interviewed finished several degrees. Some finished high school. I'm sorry to say our oldest member, an African-American Amer African member of the group, age 70, couldn't join us tonight. But could the rest of you introduce yourselves? I'm a 16-year-old junior in high school. <laughs> I teach college. I own my own business. I'm a college student. I am too. I'm in graduate school. So am I. I'm a psychotherapist. I'm a nursing student. I'm a retired school teacher, very active in my church. I work at a chemical plant. I do a little of a lot of things, but I'm a pretty good sound engineer and musician when I'm dressed as my female self. <laughs> well, that shows you the variety. I think they're ready to speak. Complexity is something that delights me. The simplicity of stereotypes is, of course, their charm. Because simplicity is so much easier to deal with than complexity. I figure that one of the most important things we can do is tell our stories, because that makes us human in the eyes of people, rather than some abstract nebulous clump called homosexuals. When people sit down and they hear somebody tell their story, it puts a face and a name and experiences and feelings in blood and flesh and bone. And suddenly they are a person, first and foremost. I was raised on top of a mountain. I've always lived in West Virginia, except for my travels with the military. I consider myself lesbian, but technically I'm bisexual. I tell my story not to change your mind but just to let people know I'm a normal person. I still have values. I still have goals. Here in the mountains, where storytelling is still important, my Appalachian ethnicity is rising to the surface because I like nothing better than telling a good story. As a southerner and an Appalachian, I really want to think intelligently about what the past has given us and keep it in mind, rather than just shucking it. It seems like West Virginians are tolerant, not only of homosexuality, but of various other people. Mountaineers have been called hillbillies. Then the hippies came in, and they were pretty much accepted. Then you have the gays. I'm not saying they accept homosexuality, they just seem to accept people. When I used to feel like giving up, I'd go for a ride and come back in the woods here and sit under a tree. Because you knew if you were just in the same hollow as your grandpa and he survived it, that you could survive it too. 
I used to go up to the cemetery where he's buried and just talk to him and say, if you can do it, I can do it. Sometimes it's hard for a person to recognize how much the grittiness of their own culture or background really plays a role in their ability to cope. It's absolutely true, though. In sociology, we often refer to it as social capital. It's very similar to economic capital. You know, you know the resources that you can call on to deal with a situation. With social capital, you have the ability to take your early socialization, the tools that you've been given, and use them to your benefit. A lot of my friends have never been victims the way I was. Never victims of child abuse, never victims of the mental, the sexual, the emotional. You know, they lived a softer life, an educated life, a cultured life. And we laugh about it. I just came up on the rough side of the street. My mother taught me to respect other people. When I was a little kid, I remember one time I made a smart remark about some other kid that had glasses. I called him Four Eyes, and she really jumped my shit on that. <laughs> and she explained to me why it was wrong to make fun of people because of what they looked like. So that one stuck with me. So I learned not to be too judgmental. Or even if I do think things sometimes, I keep my mouth shut and keep it to myself. And that way I, I don't hurt anybody's feelings. My dad did do something to me once that probably made the biggest impact on my life. I was, I don't know, early teens. We was walking through my neighbor's field, and I'd seen a stick. And you know, you walk through grass, you break the grass off. Well, I broke this stick. And my dad said, what'd you do that for? He said, that's a little tree. I didn't know it was a tree, and I broke the top off it. I just thought it was a stick. It looked dead to me, but my dad made me go to the neighbor and tell him what I'd done. He wouldn't do it for me. He said, you done it. You need to explain it to him. And he made me stand up for what I'd done. One of my aunts had a huge influence on the person I am today. She wears very long broom straw skirts and walks barefoot through the supermarket and knows everybody in there. I stayed a lot with her when I was young. My aunt always fascinated me because she was really just kind of apathetic about the whole rest of the world. I mean, she had books and books and books just any kind of book you can imagine. I used to have an English teacher that knew more about me as a kid than I knew about myself. She would always make me read books like It's Good to Be Alive by Roy Campanella. It was always books of courage and overcoming. I owe a lot to that English teacher. I think she knew the ones that would make it and the ones that wouldn't. The ones that she probably thought wouldn't, she handed these books to. Here, read this. 
grandmother was a very important role model in my life. She divorced my grandfather when I was young. He was a classic alcoholic, very abusive to her, her things, her house. Once my grandfather was out of the picture, she took care of it all when people said she couldn't. She never remarried. She worked hard to get where she was, on her own. I often question how I emerged as I did. But I know it was because of my grandmother, who I spent a lot of time with as a kid. My grandmother grew up very poor. Textbook Appalachian. Log cabin. She's always been the peacemaker, compassionate. She's the one that taught me. She tried to truly practice her religious faith. And she was always my companion because my mother and father worked when I was born. So I stayed a lot with her, and she spoiled me rotten. She taught by example. I can remember getting one spanking from her. I still cringe because I don't know what possessed me to do what I did that day to deserve it. I think probably that was the drag gene coming out. <laughs> The drag gene? <laughs> yeah, you know, just cantankerous, spontaneous. I have to say, the independent, fierce part of my personality probably comes from my mother. I got a little of my mother's spitfire temper. My mother taught me to be completely independent. And little did I know that down the road, when I came out and every everybody pretty much backed off, that I would need it. I think of the toughness and the discipline I grew up with. At the time, I used to think it was abuse, but I don't think that now. I see it a lot, a lot of the young kids now, not knowing what they want for their life, not knowing how to work for it, the softness they have. I learned to hang in there and not give up. My mother is the uh, matriarchal center of my community. I mean, at Thanksgiving dinner, we'd probably have 40 people. And I was only related to about seven of them. <laughs> I mean, they all just kind of piled up into the house, which is really not even big enough to accommodate that many people, but it didn't matter. But at the same time, my mother can be kind of a troublemaker. Once when I was in high school, I'd gotten in trouble. I had to have a meeting with the school bus driver, this lady, the principal, and my parents. My mother said something, and the bus driver said, well, you would understand, you would understand more if you were a real Christian woman. Oh, oh Lord. My mother attacked that bus driver, just pulling her hair and trying to drag her outside. I mean, he had to save her from getting thrown in jail. So there's this one side of her that's that community mother, and then there's this other side of her that's just, well, wild. <laughs> she kind of suggested that we'd be wilder than we were. She just really expected us to be the kind of people you know that you both envy and you're a little bit afraid of. <laughs> we were taught to work a lot. We worked all the time. And I love work. It's good for the soul. All those hours I worked took a lot of the pain that I had. I was probably pretty lucky with it all. My mother always said, be the best that you can be. Doesn't matter who or what you are, but be the best you can. 
I've tried to apply that to living as a gay man, to be an example. I guess I had the advantage of having my grandpa's place. As you go back and try to find yourself and just know that you're carrying that tradition of strength and that survivorship. My grandmother thought I could show you the very place on the highway where the car was passing when she said this to me. She said something about Cher and how Cher had gotten this reputation in the 60s for showing her belly button <laughs> and how all her little sexy outfits had caused such a ruckus. But my grandmother said she admired Cher for doing what she pleased and being who she was and not worrying about what other people thought. I was so young, but I think even at that point, I might have already realized I was gay. I kept wondering how people survive being different. What are people up against? And how do they make it through? Not everybody does survive. Suicide rates are abnormally high for queer people. One in three gays and lesbian folk have drug or alcohol problems. Part of it is just the pressures of living in a society that makes you think you're monstrous. Maybe the fact that people are still here and as healthy as they are is a sign of resilience. Sometimes we see re resiliency in people who come right out with who they are. Sometimes we see it in those who protect themselves. My daddy made his living in a little southern town And after school was over, I would help him with his round He'd sit there in his pickup truck while I ran off my shoes But he always walked beside me when we went up to old Joe's like all the other kids in town, I'd never seen his face. But we used to leave his groceries down behind the back door space. And I knew somebody lived there, cause by morning they'd be gone. And the curtains at old Joe's house were always tightly drawn. They say that in his younger days he had loved another man And when the whole town started talking His friend died by his own hand There was whispering among the women And hard talk among the men And the curtains of old Joe's house were never drawn again I can tell you where this happened, but a thing you ought to know That right here where you're living, there are people like old Joe Cause each of us have secrets that we leave on back porch shelves Keep them hidden from our neighbors and also from ourselves they say that in his younger 
other days he had loved another man And when the whole town started talking His friend died by his own hand There was whispering among the women And hard talk among the men And the curtains at old Joe's house Were never drawn again You can see that I keep my blinds drawn so nobody can see inside. I, I would like to dress and to live the female role. It's just something I want. And truthfully, I must want it pretty bad. Or I wouldn't go to all the extremes that I do to do it and take all the chances that I do with the usual ridicule from living in this area. If it's in you, it's in you. And it's not going to go away. Some people learn to hold it in longer. About the age of five, I put on my first dress. It was red velvet. It was my sister's. She was younger. Of course, when I got it on, I couldn't get it off. <laughs> it was stuck because I'm a little bit bigger. I put lipstick on. I just didn't feel like I was in the right body. I felt I should be a girl. Even when I was like pre-teens and stuff, I used to be fascinated with makeup. I wanted to be free to dress like I wanted to. And especially back when I was young, I knew there was no way to do it in public at all. I mean, now I can do it in public, but I, I just don't do it around where I live because, face it, it's still a rural area and people might just be a little bit hostile. Mm. You know, there certainly are gay bashings or violence based on what is perceived to be sexual orientation. And that increases the more one is part of a disenfranchised class in other ways. So if you're black and poor, or white and poor, one has even less protection. I have always known I'm gay. I'm a father of one son, a stepson, and grandfather of five. I was married for 13 years to a wonderful woman. And of course, I loved her. And that was before I realized my sexual orientation. I realize now I've always been gay. I was married for 10 years. During my divorce when I was 27, I had my first lesbian experience. At that time, I knew I would never go back. <laughs> but I was bisexual then. I'm struggling with a lot of my own emotions for probably 10 years or so. But then, as I got stronger within myself, then I just like really turned pure woman. <laughs> I've always had bisexual impulses and feelings and thoughts. It was hard because I wanted to be what my mom wanted. My mom told me that women couldn't leave the house without their makeup done and their hair done. Then I joined the military, which gave me the excuse to cut my hair. This whole transgenderism 
has nothing to do with my sexuality. It has nothing to do with sex. It's my gender. See, sex is between your legs, and gender is between your ears. That's pretty well accepted anymore. I always felt like I was different. And I don't know if it was because my father raised me and he always bought me dump trucks. But my aunts would buy me Barbie dolls. And he would say, run over that Barbie with that <laughs> truck and see if it breaks her leg. <laughs> Things like that. So I was a tomboy. When I went to a slumber party, I felt really awkward. Like all the other girls would practice doing each other's hair, pretending to put on nail polish, all that stuff. And that just wasn't my thing. I was a tomboy. I dressed like a boy. I could outspit them, outcuss them, outrun them, outshoot them in basketball. I could outwork them. Guys who I'd been friends with for so long, suddenly I liked them in more ways than just wanting to play basketball. It was kind of an odd feeling, knowing that I'm supposed to go to the dance with a girl, but maybe I'd rather go with a guy. Of course, I never did. I was never sure I had any use for boys other than to play football with. <laughs> As soon as I began to develop desire at all, probably right before puberty, I was desiring boys, men, and I was very aware of that, at least the way it was viewed around uh, by the people around me. Um, I knew it wasn't a normal thing, so it was something that I kept to myself. I wanted to have a normal life and not have to deal with feelings that I had because everybody else thought they were gross and abnormal. I felt like a misfit fairly early on because my father and my mother raised me to be a great reader and to love literature and classical music. These were interests that really made me odd. So even before I realized I was gay, I was already odd in other ways. <laughs> I was, I guess, different from the other boys. I didn't like to hunt or do physical things. I would rather read books and do housework than chop wood or do the outside chores. It was hard living up to my stepdad's expectations a lot of the times. Not because his expectations were all that high, but just because I thought they were odd. <laughs> I mean, for example, as far as Graves was concerned, as long as it was a C, that was good enough for him. And I excelled there. <laughs> but then as far as sports, you know, well, you need to be athletic, you need to be successful, you need to be bigger than everybody else and stronger than everybody else, and I couldn't do those things. So that part was kind of rough. And he was often very mad about the fact that I would spend whole days in bed reading when his expectations were that young boys like me should go out and play basketball. And they went fishing. I always hated fishing. <laughs> so he expected a lot that I just couldn't live up to. Well, my father was a really good role model in that respect. 
He told me very early on that neither he nor I had that killer instinct, as he put it, and that was fine. And the society would indicate to me that one had to have that to be a man. But that was garbage. He himself was an intellectual who had worked in the school system and had seen the ways in which schools kowtowed to athletes and didn't give a flying rat's ass about scholars. My father held a lot of traditional male values in contempt. That made things easier for me, when of course one of the other traditional male values is that to be a man you have to love a woman. And so when I realized that was not the case with me, that did not automatically invalidate my sense of myself. Oh, I basically thought I was a weird freak. Yeah, I just thought I was some kind of genetic fluke or something. <laughs> Most of the time, I felt bad about myself. It wasn't something you heard people sit around and talk about. Boy, if I ever run across a transsexual, you know I'm gonna... So my condemnation basically came from myself. I must be unworthy for God, <coughs> even though I kept going to church. I had to deal with being an abomination. I pushed the people's buttons. You know, I can see why. It was almost like I, as an individual, was challenging their beliefs, <coughs> everything they'd been taught. If you bring down one thing, that someone who is gay can really be a person, then who's to say there's even a God? Which I think there is somewhere. Sometimes I wonder where he's been. Where she's been. <laughs> of course, I got ridiculed at school. Everybody called me and my friend the lesbians. And it's such an awkward age when you're an adolescent anyway. You're just trying to develop your sexuality. You're confused about everything. Your hormones are in high gear. And then to have it all just laid out in front of God and everybody was horrible. I don't think it ever occurred to me to specifically look for a female or specifically look for a male. I was always kind of open to anybody. I didn't realize until I joined the army how much I really liked women. I met my girlfriend right in basic training. I was gone less than three months from my little town in West Virginia and realized there was a whole new world out there that I hadn't known. I didn't know what the hell to call it, but I can remember having crushes on little boys in third grade, fourth grade, until I found out there was something wrong with it. I didn't think of anything about it. But when I started figuring out that words like faggot and queer referred to me, then I felt isolated. And at one point I can remember thinking to myself, I must be the only person in the world like this. At that time, living out in the country, I'd never heard of drag queens or anything like that. I, I thought I was probably the only one. Well, not the only one, but one of few like me. It was real hard. I had a daughter, and I used to think back then that I might lose her. You did this front. You put on a mask, a charade. You know, if someone asked if you were gay, you'd say, no, 
My daughter came to me one time when she was about 12 and asked me, and I told her, no. I told her that I just loved the lady that we were living with. <laughs> and that's all it was. And then when she was in college, we spoke of it for the first time. Then after a while, it just came to the point, if they'd ask if I was gay, I could say, yeah. And after a while, I realized that it was more important to be who I needed to be than to worry about all those things. I felt guilty for many years after breaking up the family. Because we had a good family, a nice home, a son, and a stepson, and it was an ideal marriage, except I realized my sexual orientation was different, and I had to discover that, and so I broke up the family. It's been very difficult on my ex-wife. It's sad, but it has to be. When I was about 40, I started looking in the library for more information. And I found a footnote about a magazine for cross-dressers. I did a lot of research. I started being able to see the different shades of sexuality through the literature. I spent a lot of time online poking around in different chat rooms where I could experiment with personality and watch people's reactions, and watch my own reactions. Definitely by seventh grade, I was sure that I liked other guys and that there was a name for it. I got a computer and eventually I had, I had internet access. I began reading about all those things. In my county, I don't think I knew anyone else who was gay and who was comfortable being gay. There was a man that lived not far from my house. And I, I found out about him when I was about 12, and he was a homosexual. I mean, I never really knew him. He was really reclusive. But just discovering that all homosexuals didn't live in San Francisco, <laughs> that was a big thing. I mean, just finding out that it was more widespread than that, that was when I really came into an identity. Because it's hard to say that I could base my identity on simply a desire to establish my identity as a homosexual took actually seeing that there were others like me. How did you find out about him? <laughs> well, my stepdad was working on this guy's porch and my parents were just talking about the fact that he was gay and that he refused to date men in the area because he had more respect for his parents than that. Hmm which, looking back on it, was a horrible thing to say. But that's the way they looked at it, and just hearing that, that, it was kind of fascinating for me to know, A, that there was a homosexual living right down the street, and B, there were homosexuals in the area for him to date. <laughs> there wasn't anyone that I know out in my town. There was always a vicious rumor about so-and-so sleeping with so-and-so. It's a very repressive town. There's no newness. It was very dead. The rumors were vicious in someone being called a lesbian. It was better to be called a slut or a whore. That wasn't so bad as lesbian. 
rural areas have a total lack of support. However, the Internet has done a whole lot for that because kids can log on and go to PFLAG, parents and friends of lesbians and gays, or go to youth organizations and they can find out. I met many lesbian women and gay men in the military, and we spent many nights up talking about relationships and friendships and issues. We have quite a few support groups in the area for lesbians and gays. There's nothing for bisexual people. I think it would be a good idea, especially for adolescents, because I know how confused I was as a teenager having to deal with all those feelings. You just want to be normal, but you're being told to be yourself. Be yourself! People will like you! Then when you're yourself, you're gross and disgusting. <laughs> it's just a constant mixed message for an adolescent. When I was in junior high, my aunt showed me a copy of Leaves of Grass. You know, Walt Whitman. I ended up getting in a lot of trouble with that book. <laughs> I had spent it from junior high with a friend of mine for reading all the dirty parts in a hallway to a big old crowd of kids. <laughs> School principal told me that that homosexual filth was not to be read aloud in his school building. So it became pretty clear right off that right my lifestyle was not generally accepted, at least within my small community. And this made me feel like my personal dignity might not be very acceptable. I can remember a conversation in my mom and dad's living room, but I can't even remember who all was there. I know my dad was and some other men folk, and somehow the subject of homosexuality came up. And I can remember, I think it was an uncle of mine, saying something along the lines of, they should all be rounded up, put on an island, and shot. Mm. I can remember thinking to myself, you're talking about me. And so I've thought a lot about that as I've grown older, thinking to myself, kids are hearing this garbage from people who are supposed to be their protectors and the people who love them. And that is one of the reasons that I dedicated my whole life to activism. My family's answer, still to this day with the exception of one of my sisters, is, well, what do you do with gay people? You should put them on an island so they don't infect the rest of us. <clears throat> I guess I was so scared to be ostracized because my father disowned my sister when I was 10 and she came out to him. And I didn't want to lose my family and everybody I loved. And I guess that's what I thought would happen if everybody found out I was a lesbian. My son and I have a good relationship. And he's married to a wonderful woman. She treats me and my partner as a couple and includes us in all the activities. Most of the neighbors know about it. And a, a lot of my family. I don't know what all the neighbors know, but since I don't flaunt it in public, nobody says anything about it. My aunt gave me some jewelry for Christmas, so I guess that counts a little bit. She's at least sympathetic. My brother tolerates it. He just really doesn't want to know too much about it. I have a freedom 
from working for myself that my friends who work for others don't have. I have come out because of my job. Everybody would ask me about who I was dating. It's amazing how quickly you can run out of gender-inspecific pronouns. <laughs> it was Valentine's Day, and I was trying, talking about trying to decide what to get my better half. And of course, they're suggesting things like popular mechanics, and my answer is, um, no. <laughs> I finally just said, my girlfriend. So now everybody knows. The only ones who don't are the brand new employees. They usually think that I'm a boy for the first couple of weeks anyway, so someone will go, oh, Casey's girlfriend, okay. They don't usually find out that I have a girlfriend. They usually find out that I'm a girl. My partner's mom was a deaconess in the Southern Baptist Church. She tried her darndest to hate me, but because she thought I led him into sin. But once she got to know me, she couldn't hate me. He has an older brother that won't come around when I'm there, so we have that thorn to deal with. I guess it's better than what most gays have to go through, being kicked out of their homes and everything. A lot of my friends use terms like, well, that's gay, or would call someone a fag or whatever. By the time I left that school, None of my friends said that anymore. So that's one of the few accomplishments I made. I had told my sister. I wrote her a letter and said, this is what I am, and so I hope you accept it. And if not, then that's okay. And, but it's who I am, and you need to know that. Of course, it shocked them. And when I went back home for the high school reunion, my youngest brother was drunk. I went to my sister's and he was there. And he was getting a baseball bat. I don't know what he was going to do with it. But my middle brother, whatever he was going to do, my middle brother stopped him. And I haven't really forgiven him for that, even today. He's tried many times to reconcile, but I don't seem to be able to do that yet. Maybe in heaven I'll be able to do that. The first person I told was my grandma. She didn't care. She's open to everybody, and I think that's where I get it from. She's very loving towards everyone. My grandmother, she has a religious concern. But pretty much we agree to disagree, and it's not usually brought up. And now she's become so familiar with my family of choice that when I talk to her, she usually asks about friends of mine. So it's gotten much better. The community is extremely respectful. I mean, when I go shopping, all these people come up and talk to me and call me by my name, and I have no idea who they even are. <laughs> Kids come, ride their bikes, yell at me and stuff. I could probably run for sheriff and win. <laughs> I bet I could. The church here recently gave me an award for my contributions. We have a party where we are recognized. 
and we invite in family. I about fell out when my older brother showed up. Mm. Came all the way from North Carolina just to be here for the ceremony. And they invited us, and we was down there not long ago visiting with his family. And they seemed to just accept us. So I'm working on that. Of course, like I said, I don't know if, if they will ever believe it's right. But they see where I'm happy, and my partner's happy, and we seem to be good people. So it's a slow process. But One person at a time. Win over one person at a time. One issue at a time, one person at a time. When I was leaving my job, some people came up to me and said I had changed their impressions about transgender people because the only exposure that most people have is talk shows where the intent is to titillate, to create sort of a circus atmosphere. I think many people didn't know how to deal with it and they were afraid to deal with it. I think they were afraid of what it meant for them. If they called me a woman after having known me as a male for so many years, are they buying into it? Does this mean that they're not straight? Does it mean that they should be attracted to me physically, sexually, and if they are? Is that a threat to their sexuality? They was afraid. They didn't know what to say or how to handle me. I said, just treat me like a person. I said, I'm not going home with you. I'm not in love with you. You're not going to bed with me. Just allow me to be happy. And so it took three months for three of the guys I work with before they'd even talk to me to respond. And it took a year before things were pretty well back to normal. One thing that a lot of people told me was they like me as a person. And they didn't necessarily agree with what I choose to do in life. But they like me as a person. And I've maintained that status. But overall, I give my life a 8.5 on a scale of 10 <laughs> for how things have went and how things are still going. Right. Well, now, I've had AIDS since 1981, and I've been symptomatic since 82. The test became available in 85, and I was considered terminal at that point. There were so many myths about AIDS. You were going to die as soon as you got it, and only very promiscuous people got AIDS. I obviously wouldn't choose to have AIDS. No one chooses. I certainly don't feel shameful about the illness. I'd rather not have the illness. It's a terrible nuisance. Of course, all of us do have a terminal illness, and it's called life. So AIDS can be a gift just to remind us to keep focused on doing whatever we believe we need to do. I'm still working. I'm not yet dead. When I come back in my next life, I'm coming back gay. <laughs> <laughs> How 
How come you're coming back gay again? Well, I won this time. Why not? It'd be easier the next time I already done all the Thor work. <laughs> it just isn't me. I really believe that God made me this way. He loves me this way. I'll die this way. And I got no problem between God and I. It's sort of funny regarding my brothers and sisters and their acceptance of me. Of course, they are Southern Baptists, which says, Homosexuality is not compatible with Christian teaching. And if you're gay, and if you don't repent and refrain from be, being a practicing homosexual, you'll die and go to hell. And they're of that frame. I remember things like, love everybody, and everybody is considered equal. To me, it seemed more Christian to love everybody, guy or girl. Love everybody, whatever color they are. You love everyone as a Christian. I had one sister. Every time she sent me a card, of course, expressing her love, but in it, she would have these scriptures that, you know, homosexuality is wrong and you'll go to hell. <laughs> and I finally just told her that, I've dealt with this for 20 years, and I've accepted myself, and I don't believe it's wrong. And if that's all you can do when you send me a card, is to quote scripture that condemns me and makes me feel bad, then don't bother to write or send me a card. Of course, I felt bad about that because she's doing it out of misguided love for me. I was hoping it would force her to think, and, and, and I think it did. Because my youngest sister, we're the best of friends, and, and she visits the other one back and forth. After that, maybe a year or so later, my younger sister just told the other one, you don't need to be so condemning of everybody. Take care of yourself and let everybody else worry about themselves. So my sister finally realized it and invites my partner and I down to her home. Baptist, religious, background. Strong Baptist, especially with my grandparents. With my parents, it was not a regularly practiced thing, but it was sort of evident in the house rules and just the belief system in general. I started going to church and, of course, found out that they think it's gross, too. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm just gross. I'm this gross person and I can't help it. So again, I tried to stifle my feelings. My ex-wife and I went to Assembly of God, Pentecostal. I had the church pray for me, even though they didn't know what I was requesting. <laughs> I said that I just had a deep issue in my life that I wanted God to take care of. So the church prayed, and we fasted, and we cried, but never no solution. At one point I was into a fundamentalist puritanical church. And um, that didn't do too much for my reconciling this cross-dressing business. 
it took me a long time to just say the hell with some of the things they thought about that. I'm still Christian, but I just don't accept the extremist, right-wing views of the fundamentalist people. As far as I'm concerned, Christianity isn't believing every word, chapter, verse, and doctrine. To me, it's believing in Christ and in the divinity of Christ. The rest of it was written down by a bunch of fanatical monks about a thousand years ago. <laughs> There's one place in the Bible that says it's an abomination to wear a dress if you're male and to wear men's clothes if you're female. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. That's Deuteronomy 22.5. <laughs> There's a lot of background to why that statement is said. Mm -hmm. There were men going into the tents of the women and having sex with them. And that was forbidden. So they would dress as women to get past. But if you read just a few verses past... That there's a lot of other things that it says are abominations. You're supposed to stone your children if they disobey. You've got to do the whole study. Look at the big picture. Because the modern day church forgets that these are translations and that translations don't always translate exactly word for word. My bottom line for religion and God is, it's how I treat you and how I love God. Everything else will fall in line. Love your neighbors, yourself, and love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. I had some sexual activity late in high school. But dear Lord, the price was horrible guilt. I tried to. I went through this whole process of, you know, getting religion in my life so I could uh, get right with God and get this all taken care of. And that lasted about a year. It was at that point that it all broke loose. And when I came out, I'm here to tell you, I came out. Within one week, I was out going to the gay bars. And at the end of that week, I had booked my first drag show. So I never do things small. Well, of course it's that drag gene again. It has to be dramatic. I was on this journey, and it was God-ordained. I just knew that God was leading me down this road. Finally, I just thought, I tried not to be this way, but I can't help the way I am. So... If God made every human being, then I think God loves me for me. Well, certainly in my experience in clinical psychology and looking at myself, people do not choose to be gay or lesbian. I've been told by several of my instructors to expect to be fired three or four times over my career because of my sexuality and my appearance. I mean, if you think about it, why in the world would anyone decide that they were going to be gay or lesbian when they know they're going to get an enormous amount of hassle? 
and risk losing jobs, housing, their status in the church, their children, for what point? You wouldn't sit down and decide that. That doesn't mean that all gay people would rather be heterosexual. I think being gay is perfectly lovely. <laughs> I know what I want. I know what I like. And I know who I am. It's really not about sexuality. It's just where I found love. It's where I found myself at. That's where I found life at. So, I don't really look at it as the sexuality as much as the spiritual side of a human life becoming. I'm finally starting to love me. I never did that before. It's been a very long, long battle. I didn't love me until a few years ago. And that was a big awakening. Because I had finally reached that point. And when I realized I loved me, I looked in the mirror, I cried. I looked, I stopped, and I cried. And then I just kind of smiled. <laughs> For the first time, I knew what it was to finally start liking me. You fall in love with who you fall in love with. You can't help that. It's just the way we're made. We feel the way we do. Most people can be beautiful in some way. The trick is not to let yourself get fooled with what you're expecting. Because we all have expectations of what we think we will like. But if you, should, if you put aside those expectations, sometimes you realize you like things you don't think you would. Try to imagine how different you might be, and how different the world might be, if more parents would sing lullabies like this to their children. You can be anybody that you want to be. You can love whomever you will. You can travel any country where your heart leads and know I will love you still. You can live by yourself. You can gather friends around, you can choose one special one. And the only measure of your words and your deeds will be the love you leave behind when you're I try to understand and relate to how women feel, how they're treated in this society. I had to come up with a whole new definition of what it is to be a man and also a gay man. I think masculinity is a much more fragile construct in this society than femininity. And that's why gay bashers tend to be male, not mm -hmm. female. I guess inside I'm still the same person I always was, but this way I give myself license to act feminine and do what I consider feminine things. 
I don't have to do this masculine thing. I, I think men in this society are pretty much expected to be self-sufficient and not ask for help. When somebody calls me gay or faggot, they do it because they see me behaving in some non-traditional way for a male in this society. They're not going to accuse me of being gay because they see me having sex on the street. I just don't do that. <laughs> Most of us don't do that. But in some ways, I'm going to be non-traditional, either because I'm more active in peace issues, or I talk about racism, or I study dance, or whatever. I don't fit into the traditional mold which tells us that it's about power, not sexuality. I learned from the gay community that there's a kind of androgyny of skills. That is, men and women who are self-reliant and confident in a wide variety of skills. Some of which are considered male, and some of which are considered female. I learned from my lesbian friends that it's more important to be self-reliant than to be concerned with whether your learning is male or female. I was dad's right-hand man. It wasn't so much whether I was a boy or a girl. I was the oldest. I've learned both roles. I helped mom in the kitchen, and I helped dad outside. Whenever dad hunted, he had to have help. Doing stuff in the kitchen isn't as stressful as carrying a deer or fixing a tractor. If you see two women are two men taking care of each other emotionally, financially, and spiritually. That really does a lot to our traditional belief system, which plays itself out economically, politically, religiously, which also says that we need a heterosexual relationship where the man is in charge. We need males retaining more of the power in all areas of life, right? This means that those of us who are gay or lesbian are challenging entire systems. And I think that's frightening for many people. From what I've been able to figure out, women are supposed to be able to depend more on each other and, and not have to go it alone. Uh, I can relax and let other people... Uh, since I'm basically a very private person, as you might have guessed by now, and I don't open up very well, uh, actually this interview would have probably gone easier if I'd been dressed as my female persona, because she rattles on. <laughs> uh, me being me, uh, Mr. X, you might want to call me, is kind of quiet, shy, and backward. Now, as a matter of fact, if you've noticed, I, <laughs> I haven't looked you in the eye, but about twice, right? Okay, if I were dressed as my female persona, I'd be sitting here moving, talking, looking at you straight in the eye, just like any woman would, because it's something I give myself liberty to do when I'm dressed like that. I feel freer to relate to people that way than I do in, in my repressed male personality. Actually, even today, I'm probably in more of a male role in the world of men because of the business. I've been working on the emotional side of interacting with women. I don't know. I think there's both sides to everybody. I was raised a tomboy, 
And now I'm older, I'm turning a lot femmer. <laughs> it's nice. I can see both sides. People still have this stereotypical idea in their head that the relationship has to have one to being a girl and one being a guy. We're all birds in a cage, and we're trying to get out. We're trying to find meaning. I say you go through all of that which you've received about sex roles, and you choose some qualities that you would like to keep. Sometimes I talk about courage, about not being a coward. And that's one of those qualities I grew up with. All these tales of the Greek and Roman warriors, and then the Confederate warriors. I think about all my Amazons, all the wonderful women I've known, and I see these very same qualities in them. Some of those qualities that some people would call masculine, that I admire that I hope to be able to retain and to develop. Because I think that courage is something you have to work on to develop over a lifetime. You have to have it to be openly gay. Someone said, you have a lot of courage. And I said, to me, it's a matter of survival. I'm just doing what I have to do. But that is the definition of courage, I guess. I never had the attitude that cooking was necessarily a feminine thing, because my father was the cook in the family. You know, my lesbian friend Laura, she's very handy under the hood of her car. I admire compassion. Some people would regard that as a female quality. That's absurd. I know compassionate men. I think of them as just human traits. It's gotten to the point now where my gender is almost interchangeable to everyone but my close friends. Like, I'm a professional wrestler. Sometimes I wrestle as a girl. Sometimes I wrestle as a boy. Sometimes I ref and we just don't tell the crowd what I am and let them do their own thinking. <laughs> I had all my life wanted to be what I am, which is sometimes girly and sometimes totally not. One year for Christmas, I bought my son an Easy Bake Oven, and he loves to make little cookies and stuff. I mean, it's okay for boys to like to cook. But some, buying somebody an Easy Bake Oven doesn't make them gay. It makes them able to cook a cookie, okay? <laughs> it's all right. So then, when Tommy was like three or four, he wanted one of those baby dolls that rolls, I think it was called a tumble baby or something. So I went ahead and bought the tumble baby and a dump truck. And of course, he didn't play with the dump truck at all. He was playing with the tumble baby. And you know, he's a normal enough kid. He plays soccer, he's in Cub Scouts. He still likes to help me cook. And we're making a little cookbook. My grandson liked Barbie dolls. And he was in kindergarten. And all the kids were saying, you're gay. <laughs> he looks up at the whole class and says, No, I'm not. My grandma is. <laughs> but I'm not. Tommy's been open to it a lot because my sister's gay, and I've always been open with him about that. I just tell him, yeah, 
Some people are gay, and that's okay. People feel how they feel. I made up my mind. It's not going to get better. And I just thought, well, what can I do? And that was on my mind for a while. One Friday, the House Judiciary Committee, the legislature, was holding a hearing on the hate crimes bill for West Virginia, and I went. And I testified. It was very personal. I didn't rehearse. I didn't know, even know I was going to speak. I really didn't completely come out to myself until I was in college. When, when I got up there, the words just came out, and I told them things were bad at my school, that I'd almost given up, and that I was a person like everyone else. Because a lot of the religious people there were saying that we should protect these people. We shouldn't give them special consideration or whatever. But I just said, I hope that this law will help make things better. Of course, they didn't pass it. Maybe they will next year. I wanted to become what I always felt I was. So I started taking hormones when I was 42, and then surgery was just 11 months ago. I don't think my male self ever really did exist, in a sense. He was just playing the role. He was a figment of everybody's imagination. And I finally got tired of that. And I had to become real. To become real, I had to be Jennifer. <laughs> I feel really lucky that I don't feel inhibited by my sexuality anymore. It took years of dealing with being me and saying, Look, different people feel different ways. They have their own quirks, they have their own values and beliefs. And why is it okay for Joe Blow over there to be like a conservative Republican Christian? And why is it not okay for me to be me? I mean, everybody is who they are. And everyone should be as accepted as such. Years later, I found out that there were clubs and bars that cross-dressers and gay people could safely go to. So I went out in all my finest finery and finally started hitting the bars. Uh, never got into the sexual scene, although I did get hit on quite a few times. But I remember one evening, one of the bartenders there was a, a lesbian lady. And I was not interested in picking anybody up, and uh, neither was she. But the bar was pretty well empty, and they had this big old disco sound system, and they were playing stuff. So I was being my female self, and she was just being her typical normal lesbian self. But we danced together. It seemed weird to both of us. I mean, it was... It was friendly and nice. It was nice to hold somebody because that's something I don't normally do. Since I didn't know how to dance, she led. <laughs> but it was fun. We just wanted to hold each other a little bit. 
because the bars are lonely sometimes. It's really, really lonely. This county's not one that's really open. There's a lot of the younger kids that are coming out, but for us older ones, it's, there's a few of us, but very few. And you get pretty lonely with it all. The military is its own subculture like being gay is. There's a whole different world that I just don't feel a part of anymore. It's kind of hard. I'd like to go back if it was different. It really hurt after nine months of living in the military to not be able to be proud of who I was as a lesbian. I was dealing with all of these feelings that I really hadn't had a chance to understand yet. And I was hearing so often people calling other kids gay. When Matthew Shepard was killed, that was pretty influential on how open I decided to be. You know, when you hear, that's gay, or that kid, he's a fag. And some of these were from people who, to that point, I still considered my friends. It was hard to deal with that, and I decided that autumn when Matthew Shepard died to wear a little armband. During one visit to a gay bar, I happened to walk in on a meeting of cross-dressers. They get together like once a month and socialize. They were all having a good time. It let me know that there are more people around. I mean, intellectually, I already knew from what I read that there were a lot of us out there. But it was nice to see a whole bunch in one place. There was a little bit of solidarity in it, too. I'm teaching my grandkids to be proud of who they are and not fall short of who they can be, to always be honest and stay with the integrity. They hear my speeches all the time. I'm teaching them to be someone that everyone would be proud just to know. When someone mentions their name, it's always a good name. Oh, I had to change like 50 things when I had my name changed. It took me forever to get this done. At the court hearing for the name change, we somehow got on the docket to be there like a week and a half before we was really scheduled to. So when we went in, the judge said, I'm sorry, you'll have to come back on the original date <clears throat> because you have to advertise in the paper that you're changing your name. And that way it gives people a chance to appear in court on the day of your hearing in case you're trying to hide from bills or debtors or whatever. So when it was all over, the judge said, I grant you your petition to change your name. <laughs> and he said, I want to apologize to you again for bringing you into court a second time. And I said, that's okay, Judge. I got to wear a different outfit this time. <laughs> and that court just went crazy because people were standing in the doorways watching for me, which I didn't care. I've never cared for anybody to know I'll answer any question. I just always had this attitude. This is me. 
If you want to know about me, I'll be glad to talk about it. I mean, you could see them peeking in <laughs> because they wanted to see what this person looked like. Because there's not a lot of people change their names to female in West Virginia. <laughs> if I die today, I don't want my sexuality to be an issue. That's not the important <clears throat> issue in my life. If I slept with a woman, or if I grew up as a tomboy, or anything like this, I'd rather have my name associated with integrity and respect. I've been very fortunate. I've maintained a certain degree of respectability through all this because of my attitude that this is how God's made me. And I'm very secure in that, and always have been. My uncle left me enough money to have gotten a sex change operation, but then I would probably have had to move away. It's customary that you're required to cross-live as a woman or as a man if you're going the other way for at least a year to prove that you can do it. But being that this was about 11 or 12 years ago and the social climate was still pretty repressive, I figured there's no way I'm going to get by with living a year cross-dressed, especially in this area. To be transgender, you're exposed more than if you're gay. So it puts more pressure on you in that respect, if you choose to go in public. <clears throat> people knew I was a guy, so I couldn't live my life as a female without other people knowing it. Now, a lot of people are still very much in the closet. And they're scared to death, if they'd come out, that they'd lose their job, or their family would disown them. Suppose I'm driving down the road cross-dressed and get stopped for speeding. Whip out my driver's license, says mail, has my mail picture. Mm -hmm. Sheriff Buford here might just haul me off the local pokey. <laughs> and I can just imagine being thrown in with a bunch of good old boys. They'd have a lot of fun with me while the sheriff's back was turned. So I thought, well, nah. Mm -hmm. I just tell everybody, if you get pullover, tell them the truth. Don't try to lie, because if he catches you in one lie, he thinks you're trying to hide more than just that. I made a card up and carried it with me for a long time, and I put on the card, I am transgender. The name on the operator's license is correct. I cross-dress, and told it right up front. I said, I pose no threat to you. <laughs> My license plate says, I am. Are you? <laughs> I've been out for 15 years now. They don't care. Everybody in that town knows. If someone wants to talk to me about it and I feel they're being respectful, I'll talk about it. If something, someone's wanting to be trashy, I just look at them and say, pardon me, you must have mistaken who I am. And they just back off. The only reason I really care about getting the operation would be that it would make me legally free to dress like that all the time. Of course, that wouldn't stop the locals from harassing me once they knew about it. But 
maybe they wouldn't so much if I actually had the sex change operation. I mean, they would pretty much either have to accept it or at least tolerate it. They'd say, well, maybe he, she is so serious about that that maybe I better at least tolerate her as a human. Him, her, whatever. <laughs> a lot of people's getting the pronoun she down pretty good now. It's working. They're getting used to me. I come out five years ago at the company Christmas party, and that's when all hell broke loose. <laughs> this year, I was one of the hostesses at the same party. <laughs> so I turned things around, and we just had a good time. We laughed. They got to hug me a little bit. We didn't talk a lot about my life or nothing. Because you know what? People don't want to know a lot about anybody's life, really. <laughs> I was lucky. Because I had a friend pull me by the ear and say, Here, let's go this way. And she guided me down the road all those years. She loved me when I didn't even know how to love myself. I remember one night we were talking, and like these dark secrets that you have about life. And we'd been friends like 10 or 12 years. And I remember I was in a rocking chair. And just one night I started coming out. She got down on the floor and she put her hand on my knee. And she looked up and said, And all these years, you thought I didn't know anything, didn't you? Well, I was really surprised. Her love and acceptance of who I was and where I'd been in life just turned so healing. And it all didn't matter after that. Nothing mattered.
wonderful cast. I just have a couple of notes. Music for the production was written by Cy Khan and Fred Small, performed by Michael Klein and the Flirtations. The interviews from which Revelations was woven were recorded between the years 2000 and 2002. The ways in which we conceive of gender and sexuality have transformed since then. Some people may have found themselves squirming from the language or limitations people in the play express, and I wonder what they would each say now. Two people I interviewed are no longer living, but were profound models as they forcefully determined to be themselves and gently schooled those around them. And I'll name them the part of George in the middle, raise your hand, was Oaking Napier, and we just lost him. Mm -hmm. Also the part of Jennifer, Tiffany Sloan, she's no longer with us. We do not present revelations as the be-all and end-all of these conversations. Please widen the scope of our combined understanding by bringing in the gender benders from South Carolina to lead a round of gender jeopardy. <laughs> Bring in Raquel Willis or another African-American transgender activist. Bring the stories up to date by doing your own interviews. Turn them into theater or other forms of art. Challenge yourself to blur and complicate the boundary lines we create. Consider that we may find our own expressions of gender and sexuality at various points along a rainbow's arc. Respect them. Open yourself more fully on your own journey along our constantly evolving notions. Goodness knows these are times that call upon us to step up and help shape the world in ways in which we can all live. And now I want to follow a tradition that has been part of Revelations through all its 17 or 18 productions, and that is to ask if there is anyone who was interviewed who is in the audience today and who would want to come up and stand with their character and perhaps speak. <coughs> anyone in that situation? That's wonderful. who I was. <laughs> but there were so many people that at some phase that they were talking about just came back and I thought, wow, a part of that was me. <laughs> and then there was others that I thought, who am I? Aww. So it was good. As many times as I've seen this, you guys were the greatest. My name is Marilyn Morkman, and I live in Lewis County. I've been in business for 46 years. I have a company called Lewis County Printing, liquidating, but still we're there. And I've won Business of the Year, and the highest honor of my whole life is to know Michael and Carrie in the production. <laughs>
subtlety to have someone listen to your life and kind of put it into perspective. I'd like to introduce my grandson, Timoth. Being gay, even though he said he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but his grandma was. <laughs> he went through a lot of ridicule, but he made it. And that's the important thing. I think the respect that was given to me through spirituality with friends that knew me, uh, the women that helped me, that I listened to, and a community that was... It wasn't this, when I started out, I felt like I had to earn my way. And now that I am ready to, you know, go ahead and work for 50 years and then giving up community service, uh, I think at that moment, I've earned the respect of working and proving that you can be whoever you want to be from wherever you came from to where you want to go, which was programmed to me by some great women. So if I was programmed and listened, I had to be a good woman to, to, for them to like me. And it really has changed my life and made my life. And like I say, I respect every one of you. Your acting wasn't acting, it was real. And it was very well put together. And the feelings were there and it, it came out. You all have to agree with that. Absolutely. In respect to Michael and Carrie, this is a fact of what, as I have listened to it all these years, how much has helped change me in the perspective of every one of the identities that were used and put displayed, but just the fact of how we all change and are accepted in a world of hate, but yet it's still a safe place. I live remotely in a hollow where I can be myself with nature, and I'm a woodswoman in the backwoods. I still take care of the cemetery that was my great great. I'm the fifth generation of that cemetery. Wow. Mm. And to go up there and still mow it and still talk to him about being strong, wow. I can ride the lawnmower now and say, I can match you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. You know, that weakness of I was as I grew, but that, the feelings that it gives you as you grow helps you solely become a person that you should be no matter what your background was or where you came from. So, I love you guys. Any questions or comments from others? I don't come know on, the, come on. <laughs> okay, in the back there. I have a question about like the communities where your um, interviews, I mean, like the size of the communities and like throughout the state, or was it beyond just West Virginia? I was going to go beyond West Virginia, but I thought, well, that's silly. I live in West Virginia, and there are plenty of, we weren't using the term queer, but we are more now, plenty of queer folks in this state, so why go beyond? I had a connection with a church, an openly welcoming church in Charleston, so did several interviews there in urban areas and also some in um, more rural areas. Yeah. I'm wondering if, uh, since you interviewed these folks, if you've also possibly interviewed um, any LGBTQ questioning or unsure 
teens or college students recently, because I'm interested in, in whether there's a difference now in how young people um, struggle or maybe don't struggle as much or struggle in different ways with these issues, and whether we know anything about this young generation coming up. Yeah, I'd love to do those interviews. I have not. Yeah. Yeah, I, I um, was a gay teenager back when, a lot of years ago. And um, I was at the first Gay Pride Day in Washington, D.C. back mm. in the 70s. I was there. I skipped a lot of years, but I went back two years ago to the Gay Pride Day, and I saw tons and tons and tons of very proud and very uh, secure hmm. in themselves teenagers. Hmm. And I noticed a difference, because I know how afraid we all were as young people back in the day when it wasn't quite a fr as friendly an environment. So things have changed. But I don't know any of those youngsters too much anymore, though. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when you come to a university like Shepherd, you are in a safe environment, and, and there's a tremendous effort among the administrators and teachers, and, I mean, there's always a learning process, and they're always having to work at it, but I think kids feel a lot more comfortable today, don't you? I mean, we have a few administrators here. Do you feel like it's a little easier? Particularly when you have an environment that wants you to understand that, you know, it's your environment. I think that means a lot to kids. Any other questions or comments for Carrie? Yes. Um, I was just wondering if anybody who um, was acting wanted to comment on what, it, what the experience was Good like. Good question. What the experience was like acting. Was that your question? Mm -hmm. Anyone wants to comment? Yeah. Oh, I don't act, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I can read. And uh, it was very touching for me personally because when I read your part, you were me. <laughs> Except that, well, in the, in the script, She's a, a divorced grandmother in her 50s, which is what I am, <laughs> and um, a victim of sexual, emotional, physical abuse. The sexuality has nothing to do with it. This was a human that I could relate to. Yeah. And the fact that she was so brave to tell her story... Um, I thank you. Did good. Thanks. Anyone else from the past? I'll just, uh, I'll just say this kind of ties back to the can last you stand uh, up question. So we can hear you? Yeah, this kind of ties back to the last uh, question. As I read the script, uh, I mean, on every page uh, from every character, stuff le leapt out of me that came out of my own my own past and my own coming out, uh, and. Uh, the, the thing that may be different for the young people today is this notion of isolation that every one of the characters in one way or the other said, I, I thought I was the only one, and that was pervasive. And 
I think happily today there's less chance of you thinking that yeah. because of the way the world is now in the mm -hmm. last 10 years. Yeah. I just wanted to make a comment, um, just maybe context or something. Just today I was reading that sociology students, they call it a generalized sociological survey, and they said attitudes towards, towards gays have changed so dramatically in the last 15 years that they're astonished. It, there's, there's no precedent for this. The, the question that was asked was, uh, what do you think of gay marriage? I think 15 or 20 years, I don't know the exact year. 12% uh, were okay with it, and now it's 68%. Wow. And, they, and they said they don't know how it happened. It's, it's the most astonishing change in, in um, attitudes that they've ever that sociologists have ever seen, and they and they, they attribute it to the attitude of uh, I I didn't read the article. I skimmed it. <laughs> I just I just came across it. I didn't have time to read it. And they and they said that they attributed it to the to the to the attitude that gays have to be fearless and to be out there and to and to make those connections with those people. That's just a comment. I didn't really have a question, but it was just something I came across today. I think we can both celebrate that fact and know that there's still a lot of oppression, repression, fear, particularly when you're not in the cities. I'd be curious to know who was spoken with, where they live. It's still not a comfortable situation for people to be in in Appalachia in many cases. Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing to me that there is now a gay candidate for president, yeah. Kate Buttigieg. Mm -hmm. Who'd have thought? Yeah, I mean, in a way. Yeah. And the mayor of Chicago. Yeah, right. And the mayor of Chicago. Yeah. It's interesting that uh, Sal's house, house, if you have not read his book, Southernmost, it's a beautiful book because it takes place in Appalachia and it's about uh, a young man who comes to terms with the fact that he had a, a gay brother and a, many years ago he turned his back on that brother. And I asked the question of Silas uh, about a year ago in the Appalachian Studies Conference. I asked him, I said, why didn't you tell this story from the point of view of the, the gay character rather than the straight character? So it's, it's really this journey Asher makes in uh, coming to terms with his brother's gayness, and he, he, he becomes very heroic at, at the end of the story. It's that kind of growth that you were talking about that was really quite amazing. But when I asked that question of Silas, Silas said, well, I, I grappled with it for a long time. I wrote many versions of it, I, and sometimes I, I, I would have the gay brother is the, is the main speaker and is the, is the person that, that the whole... Uh, action was directed over, but then I began to think about it, and it really was it, the story that needed to be told. The problem was with the straight guy, right. and that was the story that needed, needed to, be to be told. told. And if you know Silas House, yeah. you know Silas is such a gentle, sweet mm -hmm. uh, man, and um, I think that he did exactly the right thing with Southern mm -hmm. Most in telling it that way. Mm -hmm. It's a journey then that straight people have made too. That being humanized by our, our gay brothers and sisters. Any other questions or comments? I want to see if the folks representing the nonprofit we're contributing to made it over. I don't know anybody can tell anybody. Okay. All right. Yeah, 
Any other questions or comments? Well, let's give another round of applause. Hey y'all, that was wonderful. All of y'all were just